The top reasons for moving here, in my experience, are, in order, Evergreen State College, or St. Martin's University, schooling, a job in state government, or the military. Once in a while, you meet someone with a cute story about coming here for love, or someone that was so taken by the band's leader, Kinney, that they had to move somewhere close to the band's namesake. But Thomas's story is one of the most unique how-did-you-end-up-in-Olympia stories I've ever heard. It's 5.30 in the morning. Dark, cold, maybe 20 degrees. Thomas is scraping ice from the windows of his tidy, well-used white Mitsubishi. We're in DuPont. Behind us is a massive warehouse. Thomas works here, nights. Thomas is athletic and handsome, with the energy and playfulness of someone half his age. It's hard to notice, but he's missing the very tips of two of his fingers. It took me weeks to ask him how this happened. Is it always, is it always frozen like this? Thomas's shift started before 9 p.m. last night. He's about to drive the 20 minutes home. We finally make it out of the giant parking lot. A quarter mile down the road, a police SUV has a speed trap set up. If he gets pulled over and the cop checks his ID, they'll see that Thomas is 29 and lives in Olympia. One of these things is definitely true. Thomas is a refugee from what is now called South Sudan. He's on the younger end of the generation known as the Lost Boys. Refugee children, mostly boys, who had lost or been separated from their parents. South Sudan is the world's youngest country. It was born out of a bloody post-colonial struggle for its independence from what is now just called Sudan. As a very young kid, Thomas was caught up in that bloodshed. I spoke with him and some of the people in his life back in 2016 to learn how he came here. Since English isn't his first or second language, and I was a total stranger at the time, he'd prepared a little introduction to break the ice. I asked him to read it. I came from a small village in South Sudan called Korpar, and I'm from Maban tribe. Maban is located below the White Nile and west of Ethiopia. In 1998, the civil war started in Sudan, and it was very terrible to stay there. So I remember people were running around the villages to get out because our enemy were shooting us. Many families were separated with their children. The sounds of guns at day and at night time. I remember the day I was seeing the helicopter dropping bombs on us when the helicopters was coming to us. I had seen people were running fast, fast and hiding under the trees and me too. Thomas's family were subsistence farmers. When the war broke out, their tribe, which had been largely self-governed, remained nominally loyal to the North. 
In fact, their land is north of most of what is now the border. When the South captured that land, its army convinced Thomas's tribe to join the fight against the North. At night time, I had seen the helicopter was dropping bombs at, at the jungles where there were people. And I have memory, I have a memory seeing the lights of guns exploded in the sky at night. From that night, we started journey toward East Africa with 6,000 people. And we didn't know where we will end up to. Grandmas, grandfathers, we, we kind of left them, you know, behind because they can't catch up. We were eating plants, roots, fruits, nuts, and fish. We were traveling days and nights without clear road that directed us. I remember the moonlight was helping us to see the things like trees, stones, holes, fallen trees, and the rivers. We were sleeping on the ground with nothing on it, facing this civil war in Sudan. Life was very tough for me to live in Sudan, but I didn't give up. Thomas and the others in his group traveled this way for about two months before ending up in Ethiopia at the Shirkoli refugee camp. Along the way, he'd become separated from his parents. A brother and some of his cousins eventually made it to the camp, but the rest of the family never made it across the border. So what's it like? Are you, like, tired when you get off of your shift? Thomas is a good driver. He didn't get pulled over. I'm just used to it, you know, sometimes. (laughs) So it depends. At different times, if it's too busy, sometimes I get tired. Weird (laughs) schedule. (laughs) Super weird schedule. Yeah. Thomas says parts of his tribe weren't happy about so many people fleeing the country. His older brother would eventually go back when a short-lived peace deal was settled. But Thomas was as young as seven when he entered the camp, no older than ten, not exactly a top recruit for the army. The refugee camp was organized by tribe, so there was some familiarity there. But his new life was a big adjustment. Back home, it would have been unheard of for the men to cook, But in the camp, even as a kid, he learned how to make meals. The staff eventually even gave him and some of the other kids an area to run as a cafe of sorts, where they'd make and sell foods like sambucha. Sambucha, uh, when you have lentil, you fry the lentil and you make a flat, like tortillas, and you wrap it around. One of my favorite food because it's, then you fry it and it's so yummy, it's so delicious. The camp residents were given food staples by the UN once a month. Things like rice, sugar, sorghum, and oil. But the camp wasn't a prison. The kids would go into the nearby town and barter or work for more interesting things. Sometimes you go to local people, you uh, clear out you know, their garden and they will give you like corn or pumpkin. Pumpkins or corn or different crops. And sometimes you build their houses, you know, local people houses, and they give you 
you know, what you kind of, you know, discussed with. They can give you beans or money. In addition to all this, Thomas went to school. He learned Arabic and started playing ping pong. There was a table in the camp's library. But he didn't get to play much at first. I go to library and spend time like playing ping pong and other kids, they were better. They kicked my ass. So I have to sit, wait for my time to come and then go back and play again. I was kind of like feeling, wow, they're good, so I need to get better. I just spend like more time playing, playing and, until I got better. And then I start like, you know, playing you know, for good. So kicking their asses and they have to sit and wait. 15-4. No, 16. This chapter of Thomas's life lasted nearly eight years. That's about half his life at this point. Eventually, the UN began asking Thomas and some of the other kids what they thought about moving to the United States. They start interviewing us, what happened in Sudan, and we tell them the war, and then we have to leave our parents because of this war, and I end up without my mother. They ask us if they would help us go to United States and get education. That's really hard decision, but but when you go back and if you bring them something, you know, like knowledge, I think they will appreciate it, but that, that's hard. Like you, you're just gone for kind of forever and you don't see them. It's kind of sad. No one really knew how old Thomas was. And despite his guess that he was quite a bit younger, the UN eventually decided he was 18. And like many refugees of unknown age, given the birth date of January 1st. I just got inside uh, the airplane and yes, we got landed in New York and then finally in Seattle. So at night time, <laughs> I wasn't speaking. Uh, my English wasn't good at that time. So it was a little bit hard. Yeah. So is there ever traffic coming home? Uh, at different times, yeah, there, yeah, there are many trucks, but sometimes there's nothing. You just you get on the road and then go home. It's 5:45 now, as we drive south on I-5. It's still pitch black. Traffic is moving fast. Thomas says if he isn't too tired on his drive home, he sometimes sings. He has a rich voice, steady pitch. The music he makes, you've heard some of it now is one of the ways he maintains his native language, Maban. Is the sun ever up when you come home? Uh, in the summer, yeah. Uh, so during the summer, I will see just sunrises, you know? Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's glorious. I love it. Looking at the sun sometimes. His easy navigation of this morning's commute is a long way from how his new life started here. After the UN decided that Thomas was 18, the U.S. was able to accept him as a refugee even though his parents weren't with him. He arrived in Seattle in 2009. World Relief set him up with a transition family to help him get oriented. 
basic things at first, like how to cross a city street. They taught us, you know, when you want to cross, you hit the, the bottom, so you see the person, like white person, and then you have to cross. And then also, like, walking, to, like, you know, down to space, needle, and looking up, where, like, yeah, people is up there, kind of scared. I mean, I was scared. Did you go up? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Thomas and his cousin, Adik, arrived in Seattle because they had cousins that had settled in the area earlier. After staying with the transition family for about three weeks, a caseworker with World Relief helped Thomas and his cousin find an apartment and get a packaging job near SeaTac. Five months later, as their government assistance was ending, the mother of a friend of one of their cousins, Kathy Kravitz, she came and she brought me to Olympia. They're, they were they're considered adults, but they really weren't, and they were on their own. This is Kathy. They were about to become homeless because the program they were in was running out, and yet they still didn't know the language or how to take care of themselves, as they were at that time like 16 years old. So they're kind of one of the, they're falling through the cracks. After six months in the U.S., federal cash assistance to new refugees ends. Refugees are required to repay their travel expenses within three and a half years. Remember, Thomas is maybe 16 years old at this point. He's been dropped off in a strange land. He barely speaks the language. No parents here. He has to pay rent, bills. He doesn't have a high school education. And according to his paperwork, he's an adult. My daughter was taking them food and helping them read and trying to help them as best she could and keeping the boys connected with their cousins that they hadn't seen since like six years since they left the refugee camp. Um, but then my daughter decided to go to College Station to get her master's. Kathy's daughter worried what would happen to Adik and Thomas after she left town. So Kathy got to work trying to find them a home through her church. People were sympathetic and donated things for the boys, but no home. I just kind of woke up one day and went, well, I guess they don't, they, they have a home with me, I guess, because I didn't, you know, have any other ideas. So I thought I'll bring them home with me and then find them a home or try to get them connected. With the help of Tessa Eflin, who was the women's soccer coach there, and she was a neighbor at the time, uh, really advocated with the people at school to let them come into the high school. And even though they didn't have proof of age, or we did have their uh, medical. So um, anyway, they got enrolled in school. And during that time, um, the people at the school just really took them under their wing. I was just walking through the halls one day, and I saw these kids kind of like looking up and looking confused. And it's like, well, you know, so I was like, okay. They look, they look like they need some help. So I went up and introduced myself. Muhammad El-Sakari, or Mo as many of his students call him, was a teacher at Olympia High School when Thomas and Adik started there. Um, and they were, I think, sophomores at the time. I mean, we didn't know really their age. Um, so, you know, I helped them out, and then I, I told them where I where my room was, and so anytime they needed anything just to come and see me or if they were hungry or thirsty, I had food in my room. and So that's how I met them, and then the relationship started from, from there. It turns out Mo knows what it's like to be in a new land. He's also an immigrant from Africa. I moved here in 76. 
My father and my, my sister were already here. They were here for about a year, so our family was separated. They sent for us a year later, and here, here, here we came in here, and it's like, what? What is, what is going on here? People are speaking a different language. They look different. Uh, they're eating different foods, and and um, so so that's that's how I came. Mo, yes, he came to our house because he know how to cook, like food, you know, rice and lentil. That was like really delicious food, you know, ever and. So kind of when it came, you know, food kind of tastes different, but the way he make it, it's so nice. They um, were struggling to, to find the proper kind of food. And so I went to their, uh, their host mother's house where they were staying and showed her how to make uh, some of the foods that they, they, they would love <laughs> to eat in, 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 in what we ate in, in Africa. I mean, Sudan and Egypt are neighbors. There was a question whether they were eligible to play high school sports, and uh, that's when I just went to bat for them. Why is it that we can consider them sophomores, you know, and we can't have them play an after-school sport, which is something that would integrate them and, and, uh, and, and allow them to just show who they are? They were still trying to stick with, stick with these rules, like we don't have an ID, we don't have a birth certificate, we don't know what these kids' age is. So I got a little bit, you know, excited, and I said, "Well, I'm not going to stop there." So I, um, I, I got the community involved, and so we did this fundraiser so they can play in in the league that I played in. Um, so it wasn't like a school sponsored thing, but at least it was a it was something that. They can feel like, hey, you know, I can go out and, 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 and play soccer. Thomas graduated from Olympia High School in 2013, four years after leaving Ethiopia. When I first met him, he had no direct contact with his family in their remote village. Thomas tells me that's changed. One day, one of his older brothers, back home in South Sudan, climbed a tree near their village and found a weak cell signal. Thomas's phone rang here in Olympia. I'm like, hello, who's this? And I saw his name, and he like, this is me. And he said, like, I'm in Korpar, like a village that they live is called Korpar. And he like, okay, I'm climbing up, and I'm calling you. Like, I'm like, what's happening? He like, and so it was nice talking to him. I kind of was excited, feeling great about <laughs> talking to him and how's my mom doing back home. Since then, he's been able to talk more with his family and friends in their rural village. But this new connection can be difficult too. As we're making our way home, Thomas says one of the early calls he received from his brother was a tough one. Uh, my brother kind of calls and like, oh, dad is not doing okay. His dad had died. Their home is not, we're not okay back home, you know. He got some, some sort of illness, like with his stomach, something like that. His ah. stomach is not very okay. Yeah. yeah. So is that what Internet brother? access is expanding across rural Africa. Thomas is becoming more and more connected to and concerned about the plight of his people. They were caught on the front lines of the conflict that created South Sudan. Now, Thomas says, they're being marginalized, denied representation, and pushed off their land by the very government that they fought and died for. Government kind of like totally said no. Anything that we ask, 
they will say no. So we have no kind of like, no opportunity, you know, to be in government of South Sudan, no participation. We don't allowed at all. So they kind of about illuminated, you know, in Maban. So Thomas has told me over and over that he sees his life here as an incredible opportunity to get an education and someday help his people. But it's clear that the immediate concerns of his tribe weigh on him too. Much of the music he writes is for those back home. The songs are a plea for unity and strength within his tribe in their campaign for equal representation. Thomas says other minority tribes in this position have gained representation by fighting back. There were other tribes, they were in the same situation like Mobon, like my tribe. But they, when they start like fighting, uh, now they have state, they have their county. So they're, not, they, they're good now. It's hard to imagine that his tribe won't follow the same path. One day, one day. Yeah, it, I think it will gonna start, uh, it will start, you know, uh, civil war again. Within the South? Within the South, yes. Thomas arrived here over 10 years ago. He's been balancing work and school ever since. His job in packaging led to work at McDonald's. He was a baker for a bit. And for the last several years, he's been at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in DuPont, where this episode started. He studied at Olympia High School, South Puget Sound Community College, and now Evergreen, where he's studying language, Arabic, and his native Maban. When Thomas isn't studying or working, you might find him on a long run, or playing soccer. But it's the sport that he learned in the library of that refugee camp 18 years ago that has made him a bit of a local celebrity, the guy to beat. His roommate, Elliot, tells me they have the receipts. Is he as good at ping pong as it sounds like? The champion of the Eastside Club. We got the tournament chart uh, downstairs in the basement to prove it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. To be fair, that was a couple years ago. Today, Thomas says there's a guy that consistently beats him. There's one guy, he's tall, and I haven't, you know, not beat him, but next time soon, you know, I have to <laughs> get ready for, like, you know, focus, focus minutes. So I want to see him next time. I need to really being vigilant, really. <laughs> taking it seriously, see how, why he's kind of beating me at the ping pong. We're pulling up to Thomas's house now. I realize that we'll be parking in the same spot where two years ago, after a run together, I finally had the nerve to ask him how he lost those two fingertips. Hey, what, one thing I... It was hard to hear. ...to ask about, like, how'd you okay. lose your fingers? But it wasn't I was, what I was expecting. This happened after I graduated, you know? It was a lawnmower accident. Thomas was mowing the lawn at Kathy's, trying to be helpful. He was reattaching something that fell off when... I tried to put it in, and this oh. one, my mistake, it hit my finger, like, in. And then I just heard the sound, like, crap. Oh. Just blood, and, oh. like, blood kind of, you know. Dang. It's about 6 a.m. now, and still no sign of light. 
I walked Thomas to his door before heading home myself. Most of the nights that Thomas works are followed by morning classes at Evergreen. Today is an off day. He can relax a bit. He'll get some sleep, then it's down to the community center with his cousins. They're getting help filing their taxes. What could be more American? You too. Special thanks to Medar and Geta of World Relief and Neroli Price. The vocal music you heard today was by none other than Thomas, who does in fact live in Olympia. The first instrumental piece is by Pottington Bear, and the other music is from Alex Robert, a man of many talents. He's also behind the new cover art for this podcast. Ending theme music is by Olympia's own Skrill Meadow. If you haven't already, I'd love it if you subscribe to this podcast. It's on most of the podcast apps. And thanks for telling your friends about the show. I really appreciate it. If you really appreciate this podcast and are in a position to support it financially, you can go to welcometoolympia.com and click support. You can give as little as $3, and if you feel like it, you can make your contribution recurring monthly. Thanks so much to the people that have already contributed. It really means a lot. Welcometoolympia.com is also where you can get in touch with me. There's a hidden three-acre city park full of rhododendrons that'll be blooming soon. Springwood Parcel is on Springwood Avenue, off Bethel, in Northeast Olympia. I'm Rob Smith. Thanks for listening.